Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Monica Perez joined today by Guido Preparata, who I would say, I think I can honestly say is my favorite living author. He is amazing for so many reasons. And the number one, and I'm sure people have heard me talk about your books, uh, Conjuring Hitler and the Ideology of Tyranny, but um, he writes in a way that is absolutely not dumbed down at all, very academic, but totally in search of the truth, which is quite unacademic these days. So without further ado, welcome Guido Preparata. Thank you, Monica. Thank you for having me. I, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. I've tried for a long time. I never seemed to connect with you. And then my colleague James tracked you down. So hat tip to James. Thank you for that. Uh, but here's the, here's the number one thing I want to ask before we get into your latest book, which I haven't mentioned on the air before, Empire and Church. Anglo-America's buyout of the Vatican and the hyper-modern demise of Catholicism. So it's a it's a slim volume, but it's kind of like an in, In-N-Out in burger. It's got a lot of calories for the dollar, a lot of brain calories, a lot of mind vitamins in this book. And it was really worth spending the time to understand it, as is true for your other books. But I just... I'm always struck by how unusual it is that you're so well-educated, you're so brilliant when it comes to making connections and philosophy. I was just listening to your um, podcast or conversation with Tim O'Neill, no, who was it, Um, on Younger, and I just, uh, you always blow my mind, and the difference between you and every other academic stuff that I, uh, things that I've read is that, I mean, you're really being honest and trying to bring the truth. And I just, I don't know how you survive in academia that way. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your education and your career and kind of where you are now. And and if you've ever gotten how much grief you've gotten for telling the unabashed truth. Yeah. First of all, thank you for, for the very kind and generous words that you've, you have for me. Um, how I survived academia. (laughs) I, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't, but, uh, but it's been, it's been a ride. I, I wouldn't say it's been a fun ride, but it's, it's been all right. All right. And, uh, you know, you learn a lot of things. Um, how did it start? Uh, I, I started by studying economics, um, which I didn't want to do. It was, uh, something, you know, but it's, 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 you know, parents says, you know, study that so you get a job. So I did that. And, uh, eventually I wanted to study philosophy and I want to, I want to major in music. So, Anyway, and um, so I, I studied that. I studied economics in Rome, and then I um, I took I know, and I just took classes at Stanford and London School of Economics. Then I uh, got my master's and PhD in economics at the University of Southern California, and then I um, 
and then uh, and then I got later on in life a master of criminology at Cambridge. I taught at University of Washington. I taught some criminology at a, school, at a college in Vancouver, Canada, and then I was for five years at the Vatican. Um, was a Fulbright scholar in the Middle East in the in the meantime, and then uh, last assignment was um, I was with the Ministry of uh, was it Foreign Ministry of Taiwan, and I was there for a while uh, studying anthropology and and money and things of that sort, and then I now I taught high school in LA. And I came back to Italy about a year ago and just doing my thing. Where did you teach high school in L.A.? I live in L.A. at the moment, and my kids just graduated from high school. Right. Um, Hollywood High. That was my latest, you know. Yeah, that's, uh, they're, a lot of famous people have gone to Hollywood High. But you're yeah. a real polymath, is the right? Yeah, and uh, I remember one of my favorite, when I was a kid, Elizabeth Montgomery, and just a lot of people, I think, if I recall correctly. Right. Okay, so obviously you do bring the chops, and I want to know how, first of all, like where did this, how did you have the strength, like what powers you, what motivates you to stay true, I mean, under the pressure of conforming, although it sounds like you've had many interesting assignments that wouldn't, that you survived quite a long time, and I'm sure you never varied from your, deviated from your integrity. But, you know, what kept you going and then what happened? Just long enough, long enough for them to figure it out and, and you know, kick me out and catches up on you. Um, I, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I, um, I did what I, I did what for me was just a matter of course. You know, you just study these things and you figure out because they, they teach it. They teach us when we're young that you got to denounce injustices where you see them. And I, I, I didn't do this with any kind of self-righteousness. I never saw myself as some kind of. You know, now I'm going to tell you this, and I'm, it's more like uh, I like uh, I, I like more the character of you know being puckish and like being like annoying, like a tzitzit. <laughs> more like that, not like a, not in a, in a heroic or a righteous way. Just more like a tzitzit fly. Just to, I, I like to be annoying, but nothing more than that. And uh, and so I, I I was at the Bank of Italy, of Italy for a while. I I started a career there, which I left to continue my doctorate in. At the time, I was, I just thought I studied Nazi finance as a topic to write a paper on because I thought it was just, you know, a kind of an exotic, fancy topic. And then from there, after 10 years of study, we ended up with Conjuring Hitler. And I don't know, I mean, what can I say? I, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's fun to, 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 to get to the bottom of things. But as you do that, and I'm sure you've encountered this, you see that there's, um, you start to, you know, there are obstacles. And there's, um, too many vested interests and uh, a situation which prevents from just uh, saying what the iniquity is is all about. So in the end, to make a long, long story short, you get to a model. I got to a model of society which I look at it as a, as an ant heap, right? And but a special. This is why I studied, and I want to write something about because I've been studying um, slave making ants, which is just an extraordinary topic. In, in <laughs> You would not believe what these ants do. I mean, it's, uh, I've never, yeah, academic stuff is just illegible. And, and, but except for entomology, and I don't like bugs at all. I had to overcome a lot of it because they're gross. But for the literature, <laughs> it's, it's extraordinary what these slave making ants do. And so stripping it all down, you come to, you know, he said, what is this society? Well, it's, you know, it's like a caste society, it's a hierarchy society with a top tier, which is parasites and then there's the rest and the way this is organized but it's sophisticated you know these parasites are not just 
they're not just some kind of lazy, disgusting worms that suck physiologically, you know, sustenance from below. It's much more complicated than that. And, and as you do this, you start to understand why there's so much resistance because people who argue and people who write and tell these stories are generally people that are in the middle stratum. And so they're the conveyor belts between the top and the bottom. And so it's basically us, right? And all of us have a very good idea of ourselves, which I think is a problem when you do, when you study, because I don't take that view at all. I don't think I don't just, and one of those who looks herself in the mirror says, oh, you're such a wonderful person. And I don't, I don't do that, but most people do that. Or they watch movies to side with the good guys who are going to kick ass, you know, with the villains. I don't do that either. I'm not interested in that at all. And, and also the fact that most of us in the middle stratum, though we mean well and we want change, are somehow blocked in a variety of uh, not just uh, prejudices, but also the fact, you know, and some very basic things, most of us have more or less, but bank accounts, which, you know, which where where you exact interest that too and the moment you have that among many other things makes you an accomplice in the parasitical exploitation of the 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 anheap and so then you realize as you do all of this that when you see these things in in an entomological way and as as you know as ants then you start to understand why people who should be speaking the truth and addressing what you're saying do not because they are vested in the system. They work for the upper tier against the other tier. They say they don't, but they do. And and this is what we do. I mean, and, and the vast majority of us, when our parents and we graduate and our parents are looking for, you know, in your future, they all want you to be in that upper tier. You know, they want you to be among Huxley's alphas. You know, if you can rise to the top, you'll never rise to the top because those are closed castes and elitist groups. But if you can be in the lower alpha, which, you know, the, the you know, the the, the, that stratum that is just uh, right up there, and you talk to them. And, a high and, staff position. Yeah, a high staff position, whatever it could be. So an academic position is such a thing. It's just what Huxley called the alphas. Or, you you know, um, a corporate, a high corporate position. You know, but your parents want you to be safe in, to the, in, in those combs, in the beehive, up there. And you got to be up there. And yes, a lot of people suffer and a lot of people downstairs, but it's like tough luck. You know, you got, you got to, you got to be, you got to be safe and you got to be up there. And this is the message for all of us, even the one with the best intentions, you know, and in church going, whatever, the most moral of all is still, you have to do this, but you're still in the beehive. And once you participate in any form, even with the biggest heart, you are still somehow in, you know, so if you live a life of privilege, because you do, you know, if you have time to read and philosophize, it means that you're not really, you know, working these hard jobs that don't give you any time to think and write, then you are compromised. And so you realize, uh, and academics is the case in point, as you were saying, why don't they go all the way? For obvious reasons, because they can't. Because those people are gatekeepers of all those stories and fables that justify the fact and that account for and justify the fact that there's a very small percentage who lord it over the majority. And even Eric Fromm said this, and not, it's not one of my favorite authors, but he put it so plainly in, in a book, in an irrelevant book about Zen Buddhism. But there's this paragraph, and he says, you know, nine out of 10 books and 99 out of 100 books, they're about, about you know, what we call social sciences, philosophy or not. They're to mask the fact that what I just said, a small elite exploits 
a huge, very outnumbers, very small exploits in various creative, tenacious ways, the vast majority. And so, and just to conclude this, it makes you realize that of all these books, and I see you have like a very rich book. <laughs> it looks, I don't do, I only have them there because I use them, not because I want to look smart. It's annoying to well, me. Well, let that. me tell you, it <laughs> looks very good and it's beautiful. And, 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 and we have this, and I'm also very proud of mine, but it's like you look at it and you tell, my God, nine out of 10 books is just crap. And, uh, and that's, and that's the truth. So this is why you have to read thousands of them or like you have to see thousands of movies before you hear, you know, you find a good one or you hear a good song. You got to listen to so many records until you hear a good song. It's the same for everything. So, yeah. So I have two questions from that. I, A, I always have this, uh, expression, the St. Peter test, like when you're at the pearly gates, what are you going to tell St. Peter? Like, I voted for the lesser of two evils, and he's going to be like, so you voted for evil. Is that what you're telling me? So I have to say, so are you telling me I need to stop working so I don't pay taxes because taxes are killing Syrian babies? Which I'm, I'm tempted. Like, I actually, that's a real moral problem for me. Like, I just, I don't want to participate in the system because it, it pays for the evil. Everybody has this problem and everybody says, like in ideology of tyranny, remember some guy said, yeah, 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 great, 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 great. But, you know, what do we do? What do we do? I mean, you're good at, you know, spitting all this venom against the system. But what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Yeah. And I said, well, that's the big question. What do we do? Um, there is no way of winning against this ad heap and this, this elite. They're very strong. They're very resourceful. They command and they're extremely creative. This is what I was saying. So um, you're going to collide head on with them, you're going to get just flattened. And I say this, oh, what we can do, and, and you just mentioned taxes. There are two ways in our system in which they suck resources out of everything with the complicity of all the middle strata as well. Well, taxation is, as you mentioned, that's a direct way of just, you know, we take this and we do things. And you're part of the system and you cannot evade it. The other one, I, and, and I mentioned before, is through bank accounts, is the financial link. Crucial. The only way for us to up opt out of the system, we are really opting out, still being there, but trying to dissent is attempt. And we're going to the final prescriptive phase, which gen prescriptive, which generally comes at the end of the discussion, but I'm just going to put it. Yeah, go for it. Punchline first. That's great. No, the only way that we can try is to recreate a nest for us next to the big one, but we're not in there where we can isolate ourselves enough uh, by using juridical forms such as, you know, regions with special autonomy have in various countries, if we can, where we are going to try to reduce taxation as much as possible and we can, where we can create our own banking system with, with, with um, uh, characteristics that are completely different from what we have now. And it's a thing that I've been advocating for 20 years ever since I've been writing about this stuff about creating, you know, credit unions with perishable money, that kind of a thing, which is revolutionary. Oh, Emil Zola was talking about that. I still have to try to get my mind around that. Who is? I mean, just because you... Emil Zola, remember? Emil um, Zola, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, he he blows my mind, and I'm sure, like, you'd be the person to ask if I ever wanted to go down that road, but I was trying to get my mind around his idea of separating the medium of exchange from the store of value, and he actually posited or somebody who was riffing on him or examining in retrospect that what really made Bernard Baruch decide that Hitler had to go was when he 
introduced the like uh, Reichsmark or whatever, like one unit of labor was equal to one coin, and it was removed from the banking system. I don't know if yeah, I don't if know you've ever story. heard of that. I don't know this word, Baruch. No, you'll have, you'll have to tell me. Oh well, I have two books that I'll I'll okay. send you that. Um, Great, and. Uh, they're hot, you know, hot, a little hot to handle because, you know, <laughs> you're not afraid. But like I say, it's like I, I think Emil Zola was basically a um, real fascist. Like he was ended up and committed instead of going to jail because he literally like went to Italy to work for Mussolini. But he's a beautiful writer. Oh, and he, he, oh I thought it Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound, sorry, it's Ezra Pound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Sorry, Ezra Pound. Yeah, yeah. So, that's, to... that's the problem. So the, the these and I, this is not what we. This is not the topic, but these ideas come from the anarchistic camp. It's uh, as a bunch of Germans, Gesell and these others, and Rudolf Steiner, and people have nothing to do. But yes, unfortunately, unfortunately, Ezra Pound in his uh, broadcasts in uh, in in. In admiration of Mussolini and all that, <laughs> well, threw these things in. And yes, ever since he, he did that, kind of tarnished that thing. But, and sad thing, because he was an amazing poet, too. Uh, I know, he was such a good writer. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about, yeah, I, I still have yet to get my mind around right. um, how that was such a break. Even the idea of a medium of exchange being separate from a store of value. Are you familiar with the agorist movement in the United States? It's no. like you try to have gray markets instead of black markets. No. Are you familiar with that? No. Wait, I'm just right. Agorist, you said? Agorist, A-G-O-R-I-S-T. Okay, and gotcha. it's, people are right now, they're just saying the more you can engage, it's an offshoot of libertarianism, but the more you can engage in uh, the gray market, which is you have a chicken, I have an orange tree, like let's trade eggs for oranges as much as possible and not participate in, you know, the third party system of They've money. They've been trying to, they've been trying to bypass the banking system in every way because, you know, the, 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 the tribute it exacts, the interest is so huge. And this is a problem that at least in the anarchistic tradition since the times of Proudhon and 150 years ago, and try to solve this. The solution is at hand. I mean, we know the, what mechanism we need to do. Now we have to implement it. So I was saying, if we want to have a solution, we have to be able to find a place where we isolate ourselves enough, where we're not reached through taxation and where we have our own banking system, which is pure, just very utopian, but there's no other way. And the way to do this, I don't know, maybe to reincorporate as a trade union there or, or what, you know, or as a church or things that protect you from the fiscal viewpoint. And inside of this, the idea is to create the beating heart would be a credit union with completely different, more wholesome ways of creating money, which is not with interest. Of course, can you do this under the radar? Very hard. They're going to come right. for you. They're, they're going to come for you. And all these stories and this, we can talk about this in another story, in another, in, a, in another conversation. But anytime the system sees that you're trying to bypass it by trying to dodge the two main, you know, the two main tentacles it uses to wrap you to itself, it's going to send the cops. I mean, it has, it, it has to defend itself. So it's very much, um, we have, you know, it's, it's kind of a struggle. Which yeah, I mean, that's the thing. So that leads me to something that's more, um, you know, kind of everybody's top of mind question, who especially listens to me, is what, you know, what is your view of how the power structure really works? Like, is there a, a, a cabal? Like, is the cabal 
self-aware? Like, is there a committee of 300 that runs the world? Does the does the King Charles III really have the most power? I knew a very um, high-level private banker in Europe from, you know, his family had like a bank for 250 years. And I asked him, who's the most powerful person in the world? And he said, which you would maybe disagree with at this point, he said to me, your Pope. And I, said, I was like, the power? He said, power. But that was when Ratzinger was in charge. But I found that very hard to believe, and I still find it hard to believe. So I'm wondering what you think is kind of, you know, the, the, the real, the, how much power does the top have? And do they know that they have the power? Is it one guy? Like, how does, it, how does that operate? Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, it's uh, we live in a high, highly hierarchized uh, society, sort of formed of societies, and uh, yes, of course, they're aware of their power, and they do anything possible not to make you understand how it works. They make uh, everything possible to confuse the issues, to make it blurry, to make themselves look of this as if they're humanitarian and they care about you, and so on and so forth. This is very old. I mean, they all they've always done this. Uh, they were kings, and we still have kings. And they're perfectly conscious uh, of their power. In this time, in our time and age, uh, it, it, the new emperors are, you know, are, are it's this uh, commonwealth of, uh, of Anglo-America. It, it's them. I mean, whether uh, good, uh, hardworking Americans refuse the idea because they just can, because they, they identify with a, with a sense of, on the one hand, but on the other, they see what's wrong. I know it might be difficult to accept, but this is how it is now. And of course, and they have satrapies, they have vassals that uh, that are faithful uh, in Europe and everywhere in the world that do their bidding. I mean, uh, this this is just as you know traditional as as it, as it has ever been. So, one big question, and then one question that I'm thinking that arises from this recent book, Empire and State, um, Empire and Church, that. So you said it's the Anglo-American establishment, which I would say Quigley echoes and probably Anthony Sutton. But right now in the conspiracy world, mm-hmm. uh, there there's fa- there are a lot of camps that say it's the Jews are in charge of everything or the Jesuits are in charge of everything. You know, that the power is in the Vatican or the power is in Tel Aviv. It does not look like Israel is running the world right now. <laughs> but, right. I, mean, I mean, what do you think about more, either of those I, options? I've, yeah, I've been in power structures and at levels that are not particularly high. So I haven't been really up there. I mean, I've been inside enough to understand a few things. The story about the Jews, frankly, I've never encountered anything like this. And, and... Uh, and yeah, in Israel, we know what it is. It's, it's a, it was a British creation. That it's an was, outpost. It's an outpost. It's just, uh, it's a presidium that they, it's at the end of the fault line and goes all the way from Poland all the way down to, to that part of the Middle East. It's in yeah, a, it, it was probably like, a, make sure nothing like the Ottoman Empire ever popped up. Yeah, there I mean, I, mean I don't know. <laughs> British strategists think in maritime terms. They're an island. They don't think in continental terms. And so for yes. them, and, they want, and they're, they're the best at it, and they want to keep control. And they re- even explicitly wrote how they operate. For them, any time they see a potential power consolidation over the European, Eurasian landmass, they have got to intervene. Because if, oh, I see. Yeah. Because if it happens, you know, this coalition... 
this coalescence of forces generally centering around Russia and Germany. Those two must never get together. I know the Mackinder thing. Yeah, I know. I know. Because if they do, from the British viewpoint, it's over. They yeah. control a, a, a surface that is just impregnable. It's very, very basic. And the Middle East is the nexus between the, the East and the West. The Middle West, East is right, right there, and so is Poland. Yeah. So this is why along this fault line is... Yeah, the corridors, yeah. Well, yeah, it's a corridor, and it's, and it's just oozing with blood for obvious reasons, because they cannot allow it. And how they do it, they just plant, as they say themselves, we call them wedges. And so they plant wedges. And Israel was, and they did, they created, they brought people and then give them this idea of the recuperating the land and whatnot. But it's, you know, it's irrelevant. It's, it's a British thing. And the Americans have, have taken it over for their purposes of the war games in an Orwellian framework. For me, 1984 by Orwell, the book within the book, where I cite it all the time, it's pretty much all there. A guy, you know, um, <laughs> Orwell, was he's a British intelligence, yeah. Yeah, he was close to British intelligence, and he just told you what they were about to do. When you read the book, and it's like, Oceania is annual. Yes. It's just, it's not even conspiracy. It's, it's, it's in your face. And so, and then, and it's, and the rest, he says, it's going to be a giant uh, TV studio, studio where they're going to have their war games, wars that should never end, because he says the, uh, the constraint is that whatever surp economic surplus there is, which could enrich the world. And if people are rich, they right. can enjoy their time. They don't have to work yeah. as much. That should never happen. So we got to... That's the tragedy. Yes. Never, never. We got to dissipate it. And what's the best way to dissipate it? Crises, Ugh. wars. And so, yes. I mean, and, and this is a conspiracy. No, it's not conspiracy. It's it, Orwell told you how it works. At some point, 1984 was selling more than Harry Potter. And I thought, great. So... <laughs> But then, then I just talk, start talking about 1984 and people look at me going, what? And so I don't know. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, it gets redirected. That's energy. That's what the conspiracy is. So I, I am 100%, I think basically everything's a conspiracy and a false flag. That doesn't make me crazy. I mean, there is a conspiracy. And to say that there isn't, I think is a little bit crazy. However, the conspiracy industry now, I think, is a, you know, is a dissipation, is a way for people to spend their intellectual curiosity in a dead end that they can't do anything about. Well, they're very good at it because uh, because even Amazon wrote a friend of mine who was, you know, deeply into these conspiratorial things, says, by seeing what you've been watching, my dear Joe, whatever, here's some videos that could interest you. So it's like the system is... Yes. The system itself feeds you like conspiratorial yes. stuff. And a lot, most of it is, is junk. So just to give you an idea of how flexible and how perfectly in charge of the game they are, they control every end of it. This goes back to the, the first part of your question. Is there an elite that's, that's you know, conscious of its role? Of course. Of course it is. But we're going back to that citation in the Eric Fromm book. When you are one and you have to rule over a million, you have got no other choice of, than to mystify because yes, what can you do? Or else people are going to assault you and 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 and, and lynch you and and strip you naked and so on. So you, you can't do that. I mean, if you want to be in charge, the way these people are in charge, it's the only way you could do. You gotta you gotta mystify. So uh, 
before I let that question slip away about Jesuits and the Vatican, the people who think that they're in the middle, like, I don't know if you know Avril, Avro Manhattan. Like, he writes a bunch of books about the no, Vatican. No, you don't read that one. No, you wouldn't read this. I, I don't think no, so. No, 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 no. I'm sure it's fun and all There's that. a lot of the stuff like that. And I've never really fallen into that rabbit hole, but I figure you would know. Well, I was with them uh, for five years, uh, the, the Gregorians, so it's Jesuit, uh, you know, um, flagship, and uh, not high enough to to see. I, I've seen their leader. I mean, I've attended, uh, um, you know, talks and conferences and uh, with the Black Pope and all that. Uh, you know, really charming people. <laughs> and um, Do they believe in God? <laughs> uh, good question. I... Um, you know, the church is, 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 is an army, you know, it's an army. And, um, and so they, they obey and they, are, they have their generals and they do what they have to do. All I can tell you is that, uh, you know, we, I was paid out of funds from American donors. And so, um, you know, it's... And so it, is, is it as rich? Right. I read this, I read this stuff about Calvi, like I have a book. Oh, got it. Yeah. The the, uh, the money changers. I have a book. Oh yeah. Um, and he, when I read that book, the whole thing, and I was not convinced that the Vatican is sitting on trillions of dollars of ancient wealth. Like that, it seems to me like they care about they they get they their financial fortunes rise and fall, ebb and flow. Do you think that there's this, you know, just huge mound of gold under there and they could turn around and run the world if they want? Like, I, I did not see that. I, I it very, very uh, opaque, the church. You don't ever like you. There is the least, least transparent, uh, transparent organization you can think of. Wow. Um, all in, in, and still Italians don't know, you know, the history of uh, the Vatican, so it was so conspicuously important uh, in managing uh, in managing Italian things. Um, what is what appears to be I won't say certain, but what we know is that at one time in the early seventies, there was a project uh, fronted by the Church. So um, Paul the Sixth was in charge then. And the Christian Democrats, who were his, you know, the, the political party of Italy that was his, the vanguard of the Vatican, of creating an alternative financial system to the Rockefeller or whatever. It, it was the, a, to some kind of a trilateral, different kind of, let's call it lay uh, anti-Catholic pull, just to create its own thing. And apparently, and apparently, uh, the Nixon administration was kind of. It seemed to be favorable because when Nixon fell in '74, this whole thing was um, just was 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 bazooka out in, into nothingness, and uh, so it seems like this in in the whole uh, history of the '70s in Italy, which were violent, has to do probably with a very mysterious thing that the church was trying to do things her way. And the U.S. and part of the U.S. was with it, and part was not. And in the end, they um, they they nixed it, and uh, it took them twenty years to unwind the position with the destruction of the Christian Democrats in '92. And ever since, the Vatican would jump all, try to resist, and that's the story I tell in the book. That you yes, and, and and then surrender completely because, from the viewpoint of Anglo America, the Vatican was the last 
uh, empire, a deterritorialized empire that controlled a billion souls, which listens to a different dicastery than theirs, which from the viewpoint of London and New York is, as I wrote, perfectly intolerable. And so they had to have it. And now, now with uh, the abdication of, of Ratzinger, they, 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 they had it with their own candidate. It's, it's a box. They just bought, uh, like Chrysler bought Fiat, and now they have it, and it's theirs. Well, that is the, the <laughs> essence of the book, certainly the second essay of the yeah, book. Um, and I, I want, before we move on from one thing you said earlier, though, I do want to know if you believe that story about the popes. Um, I'll refer to that in a second. But one thing you said just a minute ago was how American patriots have a hard time understanding the true nature of the American state or of the empire. And you start the, this book, Empire and Church, with which is actually an adaptation of your, um, it's, I don't think it's an intro, I think it was an afterword of the New World Order book by Sean Stone. But this starts with uh, saying that, the, that we think of the deep state as, I think I'm understanding this correctly, we think of the deep state as a way to justify the American system as it was good, but it is corrupted. And mm -hmm. you're saying by its very nature, it is an imperial state. It is You're not controlling it. There's not a deep state and a shallow state. It's, it is what its own nature really is. Can, is, am I understanding that right? Yeah, perfectly. Yeah, it's exactly it. Yeah. I mean, well, because there's, there are a lot of really good people that work, that have worked in the state in a variety of manage, managerial positions. And, Perfectly good folk, and and they want to think that that you know that this this that the structure of the beehive in which they live that represents them is wholesome. Like this goes back to what I was saying. It, it isn't. I mean, the state is the state, and it's a parasitical structure which is there to control and make sure that everybody is well in order for them to work. <laughs> Yeah, that's the sole concern. It doesn't really care that you're healthy because it it wants you to be healthy. It wants it cares and it prohibits drugs and so on and so forth. Not because it wants you to be healthy and it wants your memory and your man, mind to work perfectly. It wants you to be lucid enough to punch the card and work. And so and and from the moment that you are not fit anymore, it doesn't care at all. And then you may die immediately because it doesn't want to pay your pension anyway, and so on and so forth. So a lot of people wonder, you know, and this is mostly middle class people, uh, middle class academics and people, the writers and the thinkers, so on, who are thinking, again, it goes back to what I said in the beginning, people who have a, a very high idea of themselves and they don't want to think that, and they are involved with the system. And, and it's okay. How can you not? You've got a family, you've got mouths to feed. Sure. But they cannot bring themselves to say, I got mouths to feed, but I am part. I am. I am. I am a cog into what is an, a very unjust machine. They cannot bring themselves to say that, so they come up with the idea of a deep state. You know, it's uh, right. this, this a betrayal, uh, well, something yeah, that's it's, obscured. It's, it's a nice, yes. big, luscious apple. Yes, yeah, that region down there in the core, which is rotten and it's full of these, you know, yes. horrible people. But. No. <laughs> no, you're never getting it out of there. So, I mean, I, you're not. I, I, I gather that you wouldn't 
that you're not an anarchist, or are you? Because yeah. isn't there? Yeah, I am actually. You are. Actually, yeah, I, I, is that consistent with Catholic teaching? I consider myself an anarcho-capitalist, and now I am an aspiring agorist. But I, so I priest sent me a book. Like yeah. you can't. You're not supposed to be an anarchist. No, that's exactly where we come from. That's our tradition. Although an anarchist, yes, Catholic anarchist. That's us. Although it's weird because a Catholic owes allegiance to Rome, and uh, there is that quote which is kind of puts in a weird position. In the end. I guess we all we we respect the tradition and respect we know that there is something beyond the veil. We're not we're not so naive as to say there isn't, and this this is where we come from. But there is that. But once you are in the church, it makes you think. And there is that quote in that book by that French author Maurras of the uh, Action Française, who was compromised also with the mm-hmm. Nazis during Vichy. Mm-hmm. And I say that you know whatever he's saying is very close to what American neocons are saying today. Any, 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 and there is that quote where he says, "What's really dangerous about Catholicism? It's 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 anarchism because, and we have to make sure we control that because it's a drift, and this drift is like these people, these believers are could be very insubordinate because the faith might make them think that they are answerable only, you know, to the higher principle, and they're not going to obey us." And uh, and I uh, I have never read anything as so cynical but poignant at the same time. And then that quote is so important. Now I forget what page it's it is. It's in the book. Yeah, yeah it's it um, and it's 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 extraordinary. And now you under and then they say and this is why these nationalists were trying to cajole the church and 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 very praiseworthy of the church. Domoras and his friends were not even believers, but they understood. The importance of the church in regimenting people with this, you know, self-sacrifice and because yes. Catholics make good soldiers, you know, and exactly what Hitler was saying. And this is this is what made him do the conquer that with the church and so on. It's so all that story is told there. And the church comes out as, you know, we Catholics could also say, you know, we there's a deep state within the Catholic. There's a deep. Yes, yes. There's a deep church. That's not us. But frankly. Yes. I guess we we must have the guts to say maybe maybe we have to create our nest elsewhere. Uh, we're cherishing our tradition, but frankly, if you want to be really free from all these injustices, you got to rethink it all. And uh, and if you stay within the system, and you you know you got to you got to acknowledge that you are you you are part of of even of, of an injustice, even though you're there with the best of intentions and and being honest, even even then. When I um, was an anar- I, I was talking about anarcho-capitalism on a radio sh- station that I was on, which was a conservative radio station, and I was a, beyond libertarian. I was anarcho-capitalist, and uh, <laughs> and I know now, like capitalism, just has too many. You know, I didn't think of it. I, I was thinking of you know just using capital. I wasn't thinking of capitalism, but it is. So I don't like the term anymore. However, my argument, when people would say it's impossible, I'd say, and I would not just include Catholicism, but I would say billions of people, probably half of the world actually claim they believe in God and behave, behave by on their own accord. They stay within the laws of morality, which are even stricter than actual laws, laws. And they engage in charity. So they are taxing, you know, they're doing all these things voluntarily and it's much more effective than the way the actual government works. So I, I would say that we are told that in the Middle Ages, the question of the existence of God was unthinkable, but now the question of the necessity of government is unthinkable. 
People won't allow themselves to think that question. And But I did think people will throw Bible quotes at me and say, well, we're supposed to accept the authority of the kings on earth or whatever. You know, there's some of that, but I'm not, I'm not great with like the well, Bible. Maybe, and, maybe okay. You raise, you raise the, the big issues. Uh, allow me though to publicize, because I put out a bunch of books out there and I'd be happy to send you also a copy. But I address all this because I ask, it's called The Political Scripting of Jesus. And uh, it was- Oh, a, I don't have that one, yeah. Yeah, and, and I, it's like, and it, it was based on the, um, the um, some notifications that the, uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, basically the New Inquisition, um, kind of chastised a bunch of theologians for writing nonsense about Jesus. So I, Jesus. And so I took these stories to ask myself, what is the story of Jesus really about? And what does it mean, politically speaking, when a person says, I believe in Jesus? And so all of that is addressed there and, and, um, and, and some very tough questions, you know, uh, all these stories about Jesus being a radical Marxist. Um, is it true? Uh, was the, was, <laughs> well, it's so violent. Isn't Marxism violent? I have a question about well, that. Well, just, just a revolutionary. Was he really revolutionary? What's the story about just when he was two inches away from revolution, he starts to stage this big suicide of his and the role of Judas. And this and that, and 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 how the Jesuits were bringing the gospel to Japan, and how and why they were persecuted, and what made them do this, and why would they want to do this, and what did it mean, and how why were there so few uh, Japanese Catholics, and what did they do with the cult of Jesus, and why, and all the story. What is the story of Jesus? And uh, it is so important, and and nobody really addresses it. You know, just in in. And and what if? I mean, do you believe do you, the story? You believe the story is true, but what? How do you know for certain? And what does it? You know, and, and so on and so forth. It means something very important. But this faith of yours, from a political viewpoint, this engagement of yours, what does it mean? And um, so, and all of that is packed into this. And I would really love to challenge people and so-called believers to explain to the rest of the world. What does that mean? Or do we really have to believe in all, be it this or the story of Islam or Mohammed or, or the story of Buddha? Is it really essential that we go through all of this to be loving to one another? Also a very important question and so on. I would love to read that book and discuss it with you and also lure you in with any excuse to come back because I want to talk sure. about every single one of your books. I'll, uh, I'll send you the PDF for sure. Thank you. That would be perfect. Yeah. Um, so I've also, and I wonder if you address it in there, one thing I think is so completely underreported about the message of Jesus, and I personally think it's the most important one, is the Samaritan story where, like, I feel like it's to abolish the in-group, out-group thing that you just can't, when you have, and I feel like Tolstoy kind of hit on that, you can't have in-groups and out-groups and that's not Christian. And, um, but I feel like everybody wants that. So they completely underplay that, but it would be the beginning of the solution. No, it's great that you mentioned Tolstoy. Of course, Tolstoy is, is at the center of my book as well, you know, and it's- Oh, so Really? So important, yes. The confession is is just a, a classic, and and not mentioned at all. I mean, not as much as it should. Uh, very important, but that uh, critical. But you know, Tolstoy refuses refuses all the, the miracles. He doesn't want any of that. So it's a kind of um, it's a kind of a puritanical anarchistic revision of the gospels. 
and uh, and yeah, and of course, my my eternal Veblen is always uh, put in play in in that as well. Uh, but even but even episodes that are very disturbing for believers, like when Jesus is really mean to the woman from from Canaan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eat the crumbs off my table, and um, you know, so. Yeah, he was not touchy feely. He didn't. He, you know, he turned over the tables. Well, yeah, <laughs> in the, she, in the she, temple. Please, please help me. And he says, "I haven't come for you." What do you mean? You know. So I don't know. I mean, um, I uh, it. Uh, we've come to a point. You're where... You're not going to crack the code for us on the true meaning of Jesus right now. We've got like 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no. Re- <laughs> I'm going to read the book first, of course. So, but um. Since we were talking about it, you have a story in the book that is uh, a story that runs around the halls of the Vatican that Cardinal Ratzinger was given seven years to to save the church from the claws of, you know, it was almost like there were corporate raiders at the door yeah. and they were ready to take it away. And he's just like, give me a chance. Let's save the company. You know, are you with me? And then when he couldn't do it, uh, whether it was his fault or the cards were stacked against him, uh, Borgoglio, who I just, I don't know. I know we're, I know Cardinal or Bishop Strickland was just ousted because he uh, criticizes Papa Frank, yeah, yeah, but like, yeah, I can't. Yeah, you, you asked me about, I don't know about Strickland. I'll, I'll ask my friends who are still inside the box. Yes. To, to tell me what's going on. Yeah, I, when I heard the story of Ratzinger, I mean, these are all sources from, from you know, the insider information I got from people inside. Uh, and they, you know, they listen and 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 so then 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 great graciously tell me about it. You believe it? Yeah, I believe it. It's a, I, I've got confirmation from from yeah. the high source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're honest and smart, so I'm I'm going with your assessment. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it's like uh, it's like who's your source? Well, they're in. Yeah, some, they've got the ethos. You're going to go with it. Yeah, who, who are your sources? Well, I have a few, and and I've 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 um, cross referenced, and everybody says uh, because yeah, the story is like what it was given, and it's exactly the time it took. It looks like a a major a major conspiracy and but, but this is how it works i mean a conspiracy of course i mean again in a higher it's too of, important not to be it's too important not to be they don't leave these things up to secret ballots like it's just not believable thousands of years in that they haven't figured out how to hijack that system in a, in a society as hierarchized as ours where the stakes are so huge of course it is everything is, is done on a conspiratorial yeah, the, basis the ballot is just the smoke and mirrors like they have to have it so that we can pretend like it's a system I mean, that has I mean, value I don't think there's anybody uh, so foolish as to believe that his or her vote really counts for anything so yeah, yeah. So um, I have some very specific questions that I wanted to ask you, but before I do, this is James, my colleague with whom you have uh, mm-hmm. interacted. He wanted to know if you have a couple of books, maybe stuff that went into Conjuring Hitler, because first of all, I would say Conjuring, Conjuring Hitler is a must-buy. It's uh, Conjuring Hitler, How Britain and America Made the Third Reich, and I would really like listeners to support you. And if Thank they're you. going to do that, this is the book, Conjuring Hitler, is just unbelievable. There's a and, new edition. Yeah. There's a new oh, edition. there is? Yes, there's a new, it has a different cover, too. A different cover, yeah, it's it's mine. It's on I, my, my label. And, uh, there's, oh, great. There's a bunch of long essays about the Inquisition that I, I, I was subjected to for, and that, but it's not, it's not because of my personal story, but the things that after that experience that came out of it are really interesting. So it's, it's much bigger and um, yeah. 
So I actually tried to go to guidopreparata.com from all of my browsers, and I was not permitted access. So how do they buy that? It's on Amazon for the time being. Yeah, oh, so the, the latest edition on Amazon yeah. is yours. Okay, that's great. Yeah, so cheaper, too, than that one. So, yeah. Yes, excellent. So I would, first of all, say, if you want to know about World War II, that's the first book you buy. But James has probably all your books, just like I do. So uh, if you could get... We also, he and I love these books, um, this series. It's two or three books about the First World War, Hidden History, the Secret Origins yeah, of World the, War I. The one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, he's gonna, he's, he's, he has a new one in, in the pipeline, and, and I was supposed to talk to him. Yeah, oh. nice folks, yeah. Um, so yeah. What, what would be a World War II book you'd recommend in addition to yours? Good question. Let, let me think about it. One that, uh, I'll put it in the I, show notes. You don't have to answer now. No, I guess, yes, yes. I'll, I want to think about it. I mean, um, uh, Joachim Fest's uh, biography of Hitler was, was a good book. Oh, um, I have that. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember enjoying the read. Most of the times I, I, I just really got nervous. Huh. That one didn't roil my nerves too much. And, but I'll think, there, there, are, there are some good books. I just have to that think. That Joachim Fest book was given to me by that banker I was telling you about oh, earlier. Really? He was German, and he gave yeah. me that book. He also gave me The Politics of Cultural Despair by, I think, Fritz Stern, Ma perhaps? Yes, 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 yeah. And I, I won't even read it because I didn't like the title because I mm -hmm. always think everything like that is bullshit. Like the politics of cultural despair, like culture, like like things are a zeitgeist, like things are brought up from the roots that the that the top is reacting to the people, and I feel like th these weird, you know, animal spirits or whatever Keynes would call it, like these things that happen in the masses, to the extent they do appear to emerge organically, I figure I feel like they're almost always a result of a technological advancement or something that really changed the world, and that a lot of times even those technological advancements are parsed out or released on purpose, like the birth control pill. Like when you have a cultural revolution, I feel like it's usually manufactured. So I didn't want to read the Stern book, but maybe I will. If yeah, you, no, if you I had it. I have it. I have the book somewhere. I don't. Did remember. you read it? Do you think it's valid? You know, I don't remember if I read it. I'm going yeah. to go over it again. Well, my my because it leads to another don't question. Remember. The I leads to a question that I, I had for you for today is that I was trying to look for an insight into what looks to me like a very manufactured um, emergence of a far right in America right now, our right, like conservatism in America should be restoring the constitution. Conservatism is like monarchical or hierarchical in Europe. It seems to me the far right that's emerging here now that like revises um, national socialism and stuff is, is manufactured. And I was trying to get an insight into that. And you actually had a very, um, provocative line in here saying, and I think you're 100% right, about um, that the far right could be activated at any time for civil strife, for example. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I just wonder if, you know, you can elaborate a little bit on, on if you're paying attention to this weird thing that's happening right now where the reactionism to what people are calling cultural Marxism, which you say is misunderstood, is that they're saying what we need is a kind of nationalism. And instead of looking towards one that might work, they look at ones that failed horribly, you know? Yeah. And uh, 
You're asking, asking Sorry. questions. Sorry. I'm just saying, like, do, do, well, first of all, do you think this American right that's emerging, does that look organic to you? No, no. Um, let me, yeah, no, I, I, I'm going to try to answer this without losing myself in the answer. Sorry, sorry. I know it's a big they're, question. They're, they're really, they're really um, thick questions. As to what to read, um, speaking of Nazis, uh, I, would, I would recommend to read Ernst Jünger, who is a very famous German writer. For me, uh, I always say, stylistically, he is perfection. And this was somebody who was really in that, you know, uh, Nazi camp before the war. After the war, he kind of changed and saved to say this again. But if one wants to have an idea of, of what this Nazi mindset is, Jünger gives some clues. And I was reading also these days uh, this um, this woman, this French Greek woman, also has been she's been uh, uh, she's been defined uh, Hitler's priestess. They wrote a book about her um, by the name of uh, her name was Maximiani Portas, but she re she was um, uh, she went to India and renamed herself Savitri Devi, and she's well known into the Hitlerite camp. And she's been writing about Nazi philosophy and then a Nazi claim to a glory and, and so on and so forth. Very interesting there also to understand more of these things that have been trivialized in the, um, in, after the defeat of Nazism, just to understand more what this was, which was a very strange thing, the phenomenon itself. As for the, um, the right wing, the new, I don't, I don't know, you mean beyond Trump, right? Trump, to me, I mean, he was an actor who was sure. trained yes. by Jeff Zucker, who ran CNN, which yeah. is the Democrat one. So he's just, to me, he's an absolute puppet. And I'm not, I'm not saying what's his here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, right. Yeah, there, whatever he is, it's yeah. not what, what his fans, I think, think it is. But it's an outgrowth that he brought identity politics to the right. And I think of your book, Ideology of Tyranny with yeah. Foucault and everything in the 80s. And they were trying so hard to bring identity politics to the right. And it took Trump to do it. Yes. So now I would say, in answer to your question, yes, it is definitely an outgrowth of the Trump uh, moment. Trump, I think the phenomenon of Trump was, was, was done to plumb and fathom how much dissidence there is in the state amongst those white strata that have been abandoned, right? Because now the system is so perfect in recruiting talent wherever it wants that it can afford to dismiss the, le the less talented whites, which up to a certain point had direct access because of their ethnic belonging to the manning the, you know, the console. At a certain point, you know, some of them were excluded. And so I guess they were just testing how many there were and how dangerous they were. And they realized that there, there are quite a few, but they're absolutely harmless. As far as the um, more radical uh, right wingers, uh, I don't know exactly. I haven't, I haven't surveyed everything in the states, and I cannot say for certain. What I know from the European experience is that they've always have been, in any case, creations of the uh, political bureaus of the police and of the Ministry of the Interior case of Italy is well known, but this is true also in France and so on. And so uh, whenever they want to create the conditions for creating civil strife, they start to deploy these provocateurs and to have street clashes and so on and so forth. And the way they recruit and, and the human types they look for 
and so on is, is, is also is almost a science. It's what I studied from my master in criminology, the, the types of uh, psycho, social psychological profiling to find people that eventually were going to becoming terrorists and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I, um, I don't believe that any of these are organic or genuine because I was expecting these genuine movements to emerge immediately after 9-11 and they were nowhere to be seen. So I would say, from my viewpoint, definitely not. I think something that was more genuine, although some people will say that it isn't at all, but I really think that just, I mean, you were raised here too. When Ron, Ron Paul's message, which was about uh, the Bill of Rights and liberty, I had a radio show, a call-in radio show. I, so I could, you know, people drive around in the cars and listen and call me. So I had, I was shocked at how many people called and echoed things that I was saying, which were echoes of what my father taught me, which was more like a classical liberal thing or whatever, you know, a, a traditional American conservative. I think the Ron Paul phenomenon was tapping into something very organic. And I think that the that what you're talking about was introduced in addition to what you're saying, but as, uh, you know, they hijacked that energy because plus they had to uh, hollow out that too. They, could, they had to neutralize it. So I think there was some real energy there, but I think they successfully redirected it towards just yeah. general anger. General, I hate Democrats, which is not what Ron Paul's message was at all. Right, right. And I think that, I remember after 9-11, they were, I mean, there were the anthrax uh, threats, but I remember very, very few, you know, Congress people had the guts to say anything. I mean, one, one of the few was Cynthia McKinney. I yes, Cynthia McKinney, I know. And boy, and was she, she, she was, was... She was basically alone. And, yeah, uh, and they, they districted her away. Like, they took... They, 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 they managed to... De it. They yeah. demonized her as well, and successfully, I think. And, uh, yeah. And so, I, I was... 9-11 for me, and, and another one of my books that I'll send you, Phantasmagoria, that I've written about, for me, what 9-11 was and the reason why, what, what, what was behind it, was a, a major turning point, uh, an epical divide, where really you saw what was happening and the end, the end of dissent. I mean, you could see that mm -hmm. there was no, you know, we, it was finished. And then whatever resistance that has to be created it's got to be led by very few at extraordinarily high costs. And, uh, and we're seeing it's been 20 years, and we know how difficult it has been for most but of us. But it seems hopeless. The cost is, yes. is high, and the, and the chances of success seem like zero to me. I mean, I'm not a black belt person. I'm what you described in the beginning. I'm like, you know what? I'm just... I can't do anything about this. I'm. I need to feed my kids, and I'm just yeah, gonna. I, I could you know. not agree more, and I I feel what exactly these words every day. But in the end, you know, it's like you know, it's the old samurai thing. You know, the battle's lost already, so might as well fight it. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's well put. Yeah. I, um, whatever. You know. Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll lose. Okay. Fine. And in the meantime, I'm just going. I know, but what what sacrifice is necessary? I mean, you've sacrificed a lot. And I just, I, I don't know if I have, if I have it in me. I just don't know what to say. You know, plus, you know, as you a, as a wife. You obviously do. I don't know. I think I, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of folks uh, and, and I've had a lot of really lovely people from as far from Australia, to Ireland, and, and we have a good group here in Italy as well. I have been telling these guys, uh, it's, why don't we just start to meet, you know? Yeah. In the flesh. And, Let's uh, do it. 
Yeah, and to start talking because there are, well, at least we should try something. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, honestly, like, let keep me keep me in the loop. <laughs> I will try. Well, I, but I, yeah, what I was going to say is like, as a wife, I and a mother, I, I, you know, because my kids wanted to go to college. And I was like, let's take the money and buy a farm. And they're like, no. <laughs> so one of them wants to be a lawyer, one of them wants to be a doctor. I'm like, you know what? Those could come in handy unless we're all living on farms. Like, I, I actually want, I want the doctor. Like, I, I, I don't want that person to be absorbed into the medical machine, but I would like somebody to be able to suture a wound in the tunnels when the time comes. I know. But you can't make, you can't just step out for not drag your whole family with you. No, no. And uh, I know. But, you know, for, for college in the U.S., it's become very hard, as you know, better than I do, uh, uh, what the costs are. And one of the reasons that we came back to Italy is because we could, uh, you know, because the free, because there's free college, you know, so. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's help. I mean, might as well. If it, we are paying for our own indoctrination, probably paying double because we pay the taxes and then we pay the the school also. But, but I know it is, uh, uh, on an hour, and I used that we could go a little bit longer. I just wanted to make sure I hit on a few of the things in the book that I had jotted down. Um, two things that are big ideas. Let's do it in reverse order. You refer to the techno structure and techno fascism. Just as maybe even a teaser for people to read the book and understand it better, could you give us a you know couple of lines on what those terms mean to you? Yeah, it was. Uh, they came from the fact that um, there's all this debate about well, should we have, you know, should we have a, a private system? Should we have a public system? And then there is, you know, I'm a good person. I'm a progressive, and you're not a you're not a progressive, so you're a fascist. And so these things are deeply rooted in our lingo. Uh, this fascist thing, of course, in Italy, I do not do not need to mention how strong it is. And you know, if you disagree with a progressive, immediately, you know, you're fascist, and so on. So. And so I just, my response was, we don't, you know, the system is a, we live in an, we live in an ant heap. It's a, a mechanized ant heap. Uh, and this distinction between public and private is, for the most part, specious. It's not really, yes, I mean, there are, but it, it's, a, it's a monolithical structure. And, uh, and it's not true that the bankers rule the world. The bankers are part of this elite and they uh, fulfill some, precise instructions at very high level, fairly highly remunerated, but it's, it's, again, it goes back to the elite and, and which governs this thing in a very, very, uh, you know, streamlined, efficient way. And so again, and then this summarizes the whole story of the deep state. And so it's the state and it, it's a state and economy as one. Some of them are more efficient than other because there's more deregulation at certain levels, but in the end, there's very little freedom, so to speak. It's uh, and, and very little market for those who worship the free market. It's all very much control. Is it global? Or are there, like, is China as, as the same techno structure as the Anglo-American? Yeah, it's global. Yeah, China China wouldn't exist if she, if, if yes, she, had, right. she hadn't been inducted by the U.S. and the World Trade Organization. So Those are the, more, yeah. If China, the story that China is like the new competitor. Is, yeah, is Nixon it, did it. Very good. Yeah. Nixon was this great American emperor. It's, it's his vision. And it came to fruition 30 years later. But yeah, absolutely. But My parents idea... wouldn't buy anything made in China in my <sighs> entire life because yeah. of 
because of that, there's like it's slave labor. And then, you know, I mean, my mother has one pair of shoes because all shoes are made in China. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's always the same. It's a hyper modern. And I say, you know, we live in the postmodern yes. world. No, it's not postmodern. It's the same good old system we have pushed to the extreme. Interesting. So it's the same, it's the same exploitative mentality pushed to the extreme. So it's not enough to, you know, pay nothing people here. Good. Now we're going to go to Vietnam or we're going to go to the, you know, to the, to the boundaries of the universe to pay nothing. And so, yeah, it's what, this is what I call the hypermodern way of doing things. It's just a, it's, it's, it's um, an exasperation of the world as we know it. And then uh, techno-fascism, yes, because uh, uh, in, in, I, I see it as just one structure, which is we have these kings and we have this mass of fanaticized little ants at the bottom who think that they're free, but they live in a cage and uh, they are extremely aggressive and they, and they think they are not only free, but extremely virtuous too. And for me, it's like, you know, look at yourself in the mirror and most of us, most of you look like monsters. And so think again. And so I gave in, in everything, in the only language that people understand, despite the hypocrisies and all that, is the language, language of violence, going back to Tolstoy. It's the only language, and violence doesn't mean it doesn't have to be brutality. It has to be any kind of bullying form of getting ahead, which is the only thing that is spoken in the system. And that's what also your family tells you, even with, you know, with tenderness. It says you've got to... You know, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, because that's the way the system works, and you got to get somewhere up there. Again, going back to what I was saying, and this is the language of the hierarchy, and it's the language of bullying and violence. There's no way around it. And so, all of that I put under this label of techno-fascism, which is the ethos of this mechanized beehive that we live in, with a few just again lording it over the majority, and we have got to find a way to escape it. And this is the duty for us because we know that we can do better than this. It's, it's so very hard. I have gleaned from your writing that I would, I thought the number one motive, you said justice, but it seems to me that your number one motive is peace. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, I, I like all of us, you know, all we want to do is just like relax, you know, eat sushi. <laughs> like, like a <laughs> <laughs> they just like, you know, lays about. And I don't yeah. understand this thing. Oh, we've got to do this. And in the name of... Calvin did that. So I have two more things I have to ask you about because I need to know what your brain is thinking. Um, and I can't ask anybody else. You said that we've misconstrued or latched onto cultural Marxism and we misunderstand postmodernism and Foucaultism. Can you explain that? And then the other thing I want you to explain, which may fold in, I don't know, is the concept of Gnosticism generally, but also you say neo-Gnosticism. And those are the two things, cultural Marxism and neo-Gnosticism. And then I will let you go. Have your fun. No, no, it's, it's, it's been fun. It's, uh, yeah, there's a long thing. Um, uh, so you said, um, yeah, Foucault. Cultural Marxism is really making the scene right now, and it seems a little facile. Like, it seems like a very 20th century dialectic, and it's making a comeback. Yeah, they're putting people they're putting people against one another. And so the Trump supporters say, oh, this sounds like Marxism to me. And the others are saying, oh, you're just a fascist and a racist and so on and so forth. And they call Marxism because they don't really know where it comes from. But all the story is the political correctness and the... Um, the politics of diversity that came into being in the 80s were actually something that 
American intelligence here, we're talking about the real clever screenwriters up there at the top tiers to create discourse to keep things in, in a state of illusion, you know, like fake flux to control it better. Uh, discarded the old Marxian story about, you know, all the employers are bad and it's all about economic exploitation, which kind of in an era where the economy was more and more economy of services didn't really, you know, gel mm -hmm. anymore. So they needed another story. And so they adopted this other story, which was uh, crafted by this French, uh, this French philosopher, Foucault, who in my book, I tell the story, it's an extraordinary story, completely plagiarized it from another Frenchman who was not an academic. He was a surrealist artist and a very, and very talented sociologist by the name of Bataille. Yeah, was this, this book. The Ideology of Tyranny. Yes, yes, Folks should read yes. that one for sure. This is I'm also trying, awesome. Yeah, I am begging uh, Macmillan to give me the rights so I can recirculate this copy for cheap because it's just, it's impossible to find and it costs an extraordinary amount of money, whatever. The subtitle is Bataille Foucault and the Postmodern Corruption of Political Dissent. Yeah, yeah. And Ideology of Tyranny. Keep going. Thank you. No, thank you for showing it. And so, yeah, and, and so he plagiarizes from this artist who was uh, an avowed Satan worshiper who wanted to bring back human sacrifice in the end of modernity. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> the guy, Bataille, is a genius. His book on, his book on the uh, economic, uh, on the, the accursed share, uh, which is an, a, treaty, a treatise on uh, the economics of modernity, is phenomenal. And he came up with this idea of power of modernity which Foucault then cannibalized this in, in which the American screenwriters in the 70s, at the end of the 60s, thought this could be good. Where the story is different, it has nothing to do with Marxism. It's about the fact that there is the machine, right? That we are in the eras of the Terminators. Mm -hmm. The machines are these mechanical monsters who suck the blood out of this mass of rebellious flesh, which is us in a state of ecstasy and and fear and, and fury and so on and so forth. And in this give and take of of this this rage against the machine and in all the the heat and, and the violence that surrounds this cannibalization process of the steel versus the flesh comes society, where power doesn't exist because it's power itself, says Foucault, circulates at the margin of this battle between steel and flesh and uh and, and it's it fluctuates in a in a in an irresolute issueless kind of dimension so and but i kind of wrote the story like that it, it, there's a bit more to it and foucault retells it but covered or couched in an absolute uh very fancy new uh packaged in new uh, academic phraseology so the americans took that, they brought him to Berkeley, and they said, we're going to use this. <laughs> Sorry. See, because I went over. She's right. <laughs> yeah. It's her use, time. <laughs> what was that? And they're going to use, I, I apologize. And they're going, no problem. Somebody's going to, somebody, I'm just going to. No, no, it's the, I definitely went over. Retaliation. And so, <laughs> and they're going to, we said, we're going to use this to, uh, set in motion or to play with with the racial tension in America, and we're not going to talk about um, the economy and exploitation anymore, but make it all about the strife, about ethnicity and crime and so on and so forth. And everything down to gender theory was a product of this. 
And uh, it's completely artificial. It's completely mm -hmm. dead. And the name of Foucault has been forgotten, but this is how it all started. And in 40 years, this incredible story who kind of germinated out of the brain of this uh, su surrealist Satan worshiper, but full of genius, uh, genial ideas through the elaboration of this hack, Michel Foucault, has become the platform, the discursive platform for the antagonisms of the, bi of the biparty structure in American politics at the very center of the empire. It's an extraordinary story. You have to read this book because yeah. that this book is absolutely jam-packed, super, super dense with that, that kind of mind vitamin stuff. And that one like paragraph is just, uh, it's, there's no way to penetrate that. It's really all in here. Like I have to say, I'm not just like an ad for the book. Like that's not what I'm doing at all. It's that I read the book and I can barely understand what you're saying. <laughs> But it's it's so important, and I've been you know what I've I've cited it many times because I understood that you know, or I should say, the the what I observed since I read it in this emergence of the identity politics on the right really solidified my you know made me want to go back and reread it because then I'll really understand it. You know how like you understand something way better once you've like observed it and and like oh I think and then somebody right you then you go back and read your philosophy or whatever and you're like yes that explains it. So I now have to go back and read it. Um but the other thing I struggle with this concept all the time um because there are people especially in the you know conspiracy podcasting community who are re-embracing what they are calling Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. And some people think it's good and the answer, and some people think it's awful and it's evil. And I, I'm not even sure I can nail down an answer. I mean, I know it means to know. And mm -hmm. I remember like Elaine Pagels and the um, the Dead Sea Scroll and everything, but like that the idea is that you can look inside yourself and understand, you know, God there or whatever. Is it good? Is it bad? And what is neo-Gnosticism? And then... You, yeah, your daughter can play the uh, piano. Yeah, also in in uh, in a nutshell, for me is all that lore, uh, anti traditional lore, not with the idea. It's basically all that mythologies and tales written a long time ago by the uh, contemporary with those early Christian chronicles that do not believe in the creation of the world by a benevolent God. They basically believe in the story instead of the world being the uh, creation of a demiurge, right? Kind of a a second rate god who botches everything up and and uh, yeah and so and and alternative things and so where the uh, creation is either poorly done or s straight out evil or straight up evil or things like that. So alternative sets of creeds and credences in uh, antagonistic to the traditional ones who posit a benevolent good god at the origin of of the world. Yeah, these these other stories don't. Don't believe that. Okay, excellent. Um, I'll have to ponder that because I actually think that I, I, it makes more sense to me to see a good God. And I always use this example of like, if you look, I'm from New York. If you look at the skyscrapers in New York, like the concept of plum and level are, are evidence of objective truth. Because they, mm -hmm. it, the building will not stand if there isn't true level and true plumb. And I, and I feel like, so you've got the truth, and then you have to have free will, which is what incorporates that chaos in there. But you have to have it, or you can't have good and evil, and you can't have accountability and choice. I don't know. 
Well, but the response to that, they will say, yes, well, you know, you believe in the Apollonian thing, you know, that there is that the creator of the universe is this amazing architect who just created matter with this extraordinary stuff that physicists decipher. But from the viewpoint of the existentialists or the batais or the crazies, that's irrelevant because they may say, yeah, this universe is built by what is what's stupendous, with what, what, what stupendous artistry. But the drama that's been enacted oh. at the center of the stage is so horrifying and so bloody that I don't know what to do with your great architect. So, because the suffering at the center of it is unaccountable. So is of its very essence, like the deep state, like Lucifer is a deep state fantasy. Because no, it's, it's the Gnostic story that it, yeah. it, God is somewhere, but who's yes. in charge here is very much Lucifer. Yeah. Well, I could, I don't know how you write all these books because it would take me a lifetime to really understand them all. And you've packaged them up so nicely. And I must say, mm -hmm. uh, your writing is just a joy. It's just a joy. It shames me as, that I speak only one language and I can't even master it as well as you. And I'm sure you you speak more than two, probably. The, the good news, the good news is that I'm writing much shorter books. And uh, <laughs> no, but it was so thick. I was like, ah. Uh, I thought I needed two weeks to read this, but I kind of did. I, I wrote a little gloss to a, a fable <laughs> of the Grimm brothers about mm -hmm. just what we spoke about it, and you'll read it in 10 minutes. I'll send it to you. Oh, that's great. Excellent. Oh, so I'm going to let you go, but I would love to have you back. And on your whatever topic you decide, send me something to read. I'll read it, and we'll share it with the It'll audience. It'll be a pleasure. I'll send you a bunch of stuff. Thank you so much. And thanks for coming out of an evening because I know you're in Italy and I'm sure it disturbs your family. Thank you so very much, Guido Preparata. And thank you all for listening. And we will uh, see you next time on Deep Dives with Monica Perrette.